Our psalm this morning is found in Psalm 73. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. But as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped. For I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. For they have no pangs until death. Their bodies are fat and sleek. They are not in trouble as others are. They are not stricken like the rest of mankind. Therefore, pride is their, their necklace. Violence covers them as a garment. Their eyes swell out through fatness. Their hearts overflow with follies. They scoff and speak with malice. Loftily, they threaten oppression. They set their mouths against the heavens and their tongues strut through the earth. Therefore, his people turn back to them and find no fault in them. And they say, how can God know? Is there knowledge in the Most High? Behold, these are the wicked. Always at ease, they increase in riches. All in vain have I kept my heart clean and washed my hands in innocence. For all the day long I have been stricken and rebuked every morning. If I had said, I will speak thus, I would have betrayed the generation of your children. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task. Until I went into the sanctuary of God, then I discerned their end. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You have made them fall to ruin. How they are destroyed in a moment, swept away utterly by terrors. Like a dream when one awakes, O Lord, when you rouse yourself, you despise them as phantoms. When my soul was embittered, when I, when I was pricked in heart, I was brutish and ignorant. I was like a beast toward you. Nevertheless, I am continually with you. You hold my right hand. You guide me with your counsel. And afterward, you will receive me to glory. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. My flesh and my heart may fail. But God is the strength of my heart and my portion forever. For behold, those who are far from you shall perish. You put an end to everyone who is unfaithful to you. But for me... It is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge, that I may tell of all your works. All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall. Our Old Testament lesson this morning comes from 2 Chronicles. We're reading from chapter 9, verses 1 through 27. Throughout the sermon, you may also find it helpful just in advance to put a marker in Deuteronomy 17 and also 1 Kings 11. We're going to be a bit stitching it together this morning. 2 Chronicles 9, verses 1 through 27. Now when the queen of Sheba heard of the fame of Solomon, she came to Jerusalem to test him with hard questions having a very great retinue and camels bearing spices and very much gold and precious stones. And when she came to Solomon, she told him all that was on her mind. And Solomon answered all her questions. There was nothing hidden from Solomon that he could not explain to her. And when the queen of Sheba had seen the wisdom of Solomon, the house that he had built, the food on his table, the seating of his officials, and the attendance of his servants, and their clothing, his cupbearers, and their clothing, and his burnt offerings that he offered at the house of the Lord, there was no more breath in her. And she said to the king, The report was true that I heard in my own land of your words and of your wisdom. But I did not believe the reports until I came and my own eyes had seen it. 
And behold, half the greatness of your wisdom was not told me. You surpassed the report that I heard. Happy are your wives. Happy are these your servants who continually to stand before and hear your wisdom. Blessed be the Lord your God, who has delighted in you and set you on his throne as king for the Lord your God. Because your God loved Israel and would establish them forever, he has made you king over them, that you may execute justice and righteousness. Then she gave the king 120 talents of gold and a very great quantity of spices and precious stones. There were no spices such as those that the queen of Sheba gave to King Solomon. Moreover, the servants of Hiram and the servants of Solomon who bought gold from Ophir brought algum wood and precious stones, and the king made from the algum wood supports for the house of the Lord and for the king's house, lyres also and harps for the singers. There never was seen the like of them before in the land of Judah. And King Solomon gave to the queen of Sheba all that she desired, whatever she asked besides what she had brought to the king, So she turned and went back to her own land with her servants. Now the weight of gold that came to Solomon in one year was 666 talents of gold, besides that which the explorers and merchants brought. And all the kings of Arabia and the kings of the land brought gold and silver to Solomon. King Solomon made 200 large shields of beaten gold. 600 shekels of beaten gold went into each shield. And he made 300 shields of beaten gold. 300 shekels of gold went into each shield, and the king put them in the house of the forest of Lebanon. The king also made a great ivory throne and overlaid it with pure gold. The throne had six steps and a footstool of gold which were attached to the throne. And on each side of the seat were armrests and two lions standing beside the armrest, while twelve lions stood there, one on each end of a step on the six steps." Nothing like it was ever made for any kingdom. All King Solomon's drinking vessels were of gold, and all the vessels of the house of the forest of Lebanon were of pure gold. Silver was not considered as anything in the days of Solomon. For the king's ships went to Tarshish with the servants of Hiram. Once every three years the ships of Tarshish used to come bringing gold, silver, ivory, apes, and peacocks. Thus King Solomon excelled all the kings of the earth in riches and in wisdom. And all the kings of the earth sought the presence of Solomon to hear his wisdom, which God had put into his mind. Every one of them brought his present, articles of silver and of gold, garments, mirrors, spices, horses, and mules, so much year by year. And Solomon had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king of Jerusalem. And he ruled over all the kings from the Euphrates to the land of the Philistines and to the border of Egypt. And the king made silver as common in Jerusalem as stone. And he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all lands. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. And Father, as we begin a new series today from a book that's far distant from us and of strange things, we ask, Lord, that you would speak and lead us into all truth, for your servants are here listening. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Over the next six weeks, we will trace through the book of 2 Chronicles as we pursue the theme of awakenings or revivals in Old Testament history and considering their significance for us today. 
It may be helpful for you to have a finger in Deuteronomy 17, also in 1 Kings 11, just for today's sermon, because we are truly summarizing chapters 1 through 9, which concern the reign of King Solomon in the book of 2 Chronicles. And that's also recorded elsewhere in the Old Testament. In 1727, Jonathan Edwards became the pastor of Northampton Church in Massachusetts. He succeeded his grandfather to that post, and what he found upon beginning to preach there in Northampton, that the congregation was orthodox but dead. They were given over to rote orthodoxy, and they were just absolutely dead. In his own words, he says they were listless, more interested in land and affluence than the things of God's kingdom. What resulted from this listless orthodoxy was that the children of the church who had grown up there and been nurtured had nothing to do with it, and their lives were completely not characterized by the gospel. Edwards began preaching, and something began to happen. The children of the church in particular began to return, and they began to take an interest in spiritual things. People were discussing and digesting the weekly sermon. There began to be an interest in prayer. They began to take an interest in their neighbor. They began to move from insincerity to sincerity. There were changes And what we know, this was the beginnings of the Great Awakening. It was also happening simultaneously in other places, but things were changing. God was doing something fresh. As the Great Awakening continued, Edwards became somewhat known as the theologian of the Great Awakening because he studied that awakening. He was interested in it. He was both a critic of it and also a defender of it at the same time. He knew that the movement had strengths and that it also had weaknesses. And he sought to discern what was authentic from what was disingenuous. He sought to discern what was true from what was false. He sought to discern what was sincere from what was insincere. He was seeking to discern what was excessive and what was appropriate. But here's the thing that Edwards At the end of all of his study of the Great Awakening, of this work of God's Spirit, what he knew, that awakening was a necessity for the life of the church. And not only was it a necessity, something that needed to happen in history, it was something that needed to continue to happen. That there needed to be awakening and reawakening. Again and again, this work of God's Spirit needed to continue for the church to have life and vitality. That the church, in order to be vital, in order to be effective, in order to be living, had to be constantly sustained by the work of God's Spirit. Our awakening must be continued work of God's Spirit, was Edward's conclusion. And so we, even today, we must be awakened and awakening. We must be reformed and reforming. We must be revived and reviving. That is the perilous situation that we inhabit day by day and morning by morning, dependent upon the grace of God, dependent upon the sustaining work of the Spirit. But why exactly is that? In 2 Chronicles 9, as we begin this series on awakening, 
we see that awakening and reawakening is a necessity for the church because of three tendencies, three weak tendencies we have. And the first of these tendencies is that we tend to serve God with a negotiated obedience. Now, you may already be asking yourself, as we read through 2 Chronicles 9, it is a litany of Solomon's accomplishments. There was nothing like this ever seen before is the perpetual refrain through the chapter. There were nations flooding to Solomon's throne to receive his wisdom. This was a fulfillment of the blessing of the promise that had been given to Abraham that all the nations of the earth would be blessed and that they would bring their riches to the king of Israel. This was something going profoundly right. And when these royal emissaries came, they brought their gifts and they were making donations in order to procure Solomon's favor. And they were learning the theology of Israel. The queen of Sheba becomes an excellent theologian, blessing God acknowledging Solomon's wisdom, his righteousness, and his justice. But there were other things going right as well. The people, in many ways, were being blessed. In Solomon's wisdom and in his accumulation of wealth, these were particularly joined to one central project, and that was the building of the temple. In fact, in 2 Chronicles 1 through 9, six of those chapters are dedicated to the construction of the temple, the house of God. This was the preeminent project of Solomon. It's what God gave him in particular to do. It was the major, major focus, the definitive accomplishment. And so you look at all this success, and you ask, why are we beginning to talk about revival and the awakening work of God when everything is going so right? This is one of the marvelous things about the Bible is that on the surface of it, it may look like everything is going just right under Solomon and in his reign. But in the midst of this awakening, there's also another story to be told. And it's the story that's essential for us to hear. Because in all this language of success, it's very easy for us to drop into a self-satisfied complacency. And if you look back in chapter 8 at verse 1, we find that there is a record there of Solomon's building accomplishments. At the end of 20 years, in which Solomon had built the house of the Lord and his own house, Solomon rebuilt the cities that Hiram had given to him and settled the people of Israel in them. This is a short summary of what the book of Kings takes much longer to explain in chapters 6 and 7 of that book, The History of Solomon. And the story that's told there that across these 20 years of building, that Solomon did construct the temple, and he did also construct his palace. But there's also critique inside of those chapters, because Solomon spends double the time constructing his palace as he does the temple of the Lord. It's a magnificent literary technique that God uses through the power of the Holy Spirit to indicate that all was not right with Solomon. That in all of the wisdom and the wealth that God had entrusted to him, in order to build the house of the Lord, Solomon somewhere in this begins to wander. And he gets lost. And that his priorities become skewed. 
And this gold that Solomon had accumulated for the purposes of God's kingdom and God's work in the world and for the renewal of Israel and for the blessing of all the nations, that Solomon begins to turn inward and he begins to use those gifts that God had given to him for his own ends and for his own means and for his own purposes. Deuteronomy 17 is an important chapter for the kings of Israel because very specifically the kings are given instruction here as to how they are to lead the people of God. And if you look at the second half of verse 17, you find the instruction. And he shall not, and nor shall he acquire for himself excessive silver and gold. That part of the blessing of God would be this untold wealth that would flow into Israel. This is a picture of what those three kings were also doing around the birth of Jesus as they came from distant lands bearing their gifts. And so the nations were coming, bringing their wealth, and Solomon was, was lavished in it. But he was not to accumulate it for himself excessively. He was not to claim it. He was not to use it simply on himself in order to bring acclaim and fame to his own name. And somewhere in all of this blessing, Solomon begins to do that. And it becomes a snare to him. It becomes a trap. And what he had no permission to do from God, he began to do. He was not to collect excessive silver and gold, and yet he made silver as common as wood, it says. It was as common as stone. And this was to Solomon's downfall, that when awakened, we must be constantly aware of the dangers that are still around us. That as we sang in the wonderful hymn, Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing, that we're prone to wonder. And Lord, we feel it. And if we deny that feeling and if we deny that wondering, then we're not truly a gospel church. Because you see, we are much like Solomon. We negotiate our obedience out. How far we're willing to go, what we are willing to give, what we are not. But why is that? Why, when we've been awakened by the grace of God, are we still negotiating with God about what we're willing to do and what we're not? This past week, it's January 2nd, I walked into the office on a Tuesday morning somewhat dragging, and I was wake, awakened with ferocity by 52-degree air in my office. I knew something was wrong because I had turned on the heater uh, prior because it was very cold that day. And I looked at the thermostat and could not figure it out. It was set to the proper temperature, but then the thermostat reading was 52 degrees. It was cold. And so called my friends at Air McCall. They came on Wednesday. And the technician, who has had to visit this thermostat several times, came to the good and wise conclusion that the thermostat was malfunctioning. And I asked him, I said, well, what is the malfunction? What is happening with it? He said, well, we've seen this one other time. But the thermostat is telling the outside unit to cool, and it's telling the inside unit to heat. And they're working at cross purposes. And so your office was being air conditioned at 52 degrees. <laughs> and friends, that's you. <laughs> You've got a thermostat that tells you two different things. 
The Westminster Confession says it this way, that there's an irreconcilable war inside the heart of the Christian, the flesh and the spirit, that though the flesh has been crucified by Jesus Christ, we are still in this irreconcilable tension, and it's waging war within us. And though we have been loved by God and we love God in return, we still experience this profound tension in which we negotiate out our obedience. And we are prone to wonder and we need to feel it and we need to feel all that tension and weight. And friends, this is why we have to be awakened and constantly awakening to to the grace of God because of this tension in this war. That we are like Solomon. We disobey. We receive the claim of God. We hear his command. We know that we've been loved by God and we don't deserve it. And yet we turn away and we negotiate out the obedience. The second piece, though, of this need for constant awakening is that when we experience success, we tend to shift into complacency. The other record that we have here in 2 Chronicles 9, is that Solomon had many wives. Sheba announces it, blessed are your wives. And back in chapter 8 and verse 11, we learn that uh, Solomon had also married Pharaoh's daughter. This is one of the princesses of Egypt Solomon has taken into his court. This was most likely to establish a military uh, truce or alliance of some sort. But Solomon had used his wisdom towards this end in which he would establish a truce and bring a foreign wife into his court. If you'll turn back with me to Deuteronomy 17, verse 17, and he shall not acquire many wives for himself, lest his heart turn away. Many people ask the question of what was the danger of a wife who was not of Israel. Israelite kings were allowed to take foreign wives, but they were to be very careful because those foreign wives were not to import their foreign religions into Israel. But that is precisely what happens. And if you turn with me back into 1 Kings chapter 11, verse 1, Now King Solomon loved many foreign women, along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the people of Israel, you shall not enter into marriage with them, neither shall they with you, for surely they will turn away your heart after their gods. Solomon clung to these in love. And further in verse 6, so Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not wholly follow the Lord as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the abomination of Moab, and for Molech, the abomination of the Ammonites, and on the mountain east of Jerusalem. And so he did for all his foreign wives who made offerings and sacrificed to their gods. And so in all of Solomon's reform, in all of his obedience, in all of his grandeur, there was this compromise where at the end of his life he slides into this complacency Despite all of the awakening and the grace of God that was surrounding him, he ends in this catastrophic failure of building idol shrines for his wives. He loved these women and clung to them, and he clung to them more than he was clinging to his God. So he has a negotiated obedience, 
And then this negotiated obedience shifts him into a complacency. And friends, we all understand what that shift feels like and what that looks like. And we must not be fooled by success and we must not be fooled by grandeur and we must not be fooled even by our own obedience. That we can all be prone to this and are exposed to this danger. And we have to be self-aware. And we never get past that fundamental posture of humility. Knowing that we're capable of this shift. That this happens to us. And that we can easily fall into it. And the blessings of God for Solomon, they were to promote greater sacrifices and greater services. That Solomon was actually to move from these blessings that God had placed upon him, not to simply be smug and self-satisfied and to claim that he had built the temple. But Solomon, like all of us, was to go forward in further obedience because of the good thing God had done, because of the awakening that was happening. He was supposed to go forward in a continued awakening again and again and pursuing further obedience. But rather, his complacency leads him to disobedience. And friends, as we experience the awakening grace of God, may it lead us into further sacrifice, into further service, into further dedication to him. That's what's to happen. The third reason that we need this awakening again and again, the third tendency, is that when we experience success, we tend to betray God with the very gifts that he bestows on us. We've seen all the record of blessing that Solomon received. One of the blessings that sounds strange to us is that he was blessed with horses. It says that he had 4,000 stalls for horses and chariots, 12,000 horsemen whom he stationed in the chariot cities, And then follow in verse 28. And horses were imported for Solomon from Egypt and from all lands. A horse was the ancient equivalent of the modern day tank. It allowed you to dominate on the battlefield. But once again in Deuteronomy 17, as we've seen that the multiplication of wives and the multiplication of silver and gold were forbidden to the king, Verse 16, only he must not acquire many horses for himself or cause the people to return to Egypt in order to acquire many horses. Since the Lord has said to you, you shall never return that way again. And the chronicler notes for us where the horses came from, very specifically. Solomon from Egypt and from all lands multiplied his horses. And so in the midst of all the blessing and the gifts that God was pouring out on Israel, on the church awakened and alive, Solomon takes those very gifts and he betrays God with them and he does what God gives him no permission to do. He has no permission to multiply horses. Israel was not to have their strength lying in their army. Their strength was in the Lord their God and their trust in him and his provision for them. And yet Solomon went to excess. He went past what God had commanded. He transgressed the boundaries. He falls apart. 
And friends, this is what happens to us in times of success. That the very things that God entrusts to us and bestows upon us to use for his purposes and his goals, we turn and use for our own purposes and our own goals that we're prone to wonder. And we take the very gifts of God and we turn them around as weapons against him. And so the church, the reformed church, we must always be reforming. The awakened church must always be reawakening. That the revived church, we must always be reviving. This is what has to happen to us to be vital and true. This is the work of God's spirit through the gospel of his son that must be present in the church that faithfully serves him. Now as we look at this story of Solomon and as we pursue the history of Israel in the chapters ahead, We'll see sinful weaknesses. And some of the trajectories set out by Solomon here will plague the church for the many hundreds of years that follow. But one of the things also about Solomon that is so marvelous is that the Bible and church tradition has always associated that the end of his life, after his catastrophic failures, Solomon also found room for repentance. We read Psalm 73 back in the service, and it's important to note that that psalm, which begins in despair about envy, despite God being our one good, that the psalmist turns against that God, that psalm has frequently been attributed to none other than Solomon. If you turn there with me. Truly God is good to Israel, to those who are pure in heart. It's a theological statement. Then verse 2, but as for me, my feet had almost stumbled. My steps had nearly slipped, for I was envious of the arrogant when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. Solomon wanted to be a king like the other nations. This is the confession that he is making. And then he goes on to speak further of that envy. And then you arrive in verse 16, the moment of repentance. But when I thought how to understand this, it seemed to me a wearisome task until I went into the sanctuary of God, the very sanctuary and house that he had built. Then I discerned therein. In the presence of God, Solomon receives the revelation of God. It's illumined to him and he understands it. God arrests him and he is awakened and turns And then his conclusion that he reaches is in verse 25. Whom have I in heaven but you? And there is nothing on earth that I desire beside you. Verse 28. But for me it is good to be near God. I have made the Lord God my refuge that I may tell of all your works. Solomon at the end of all of his acquisition, of all of his excesses, of all of his breaking of God's claim, he discovers one essential truth, that he could transgress the boundaries of God's command, but he could not outrun the grace of God. That he finds in the sanctuary that day, he's arrested by God and forgiven by him. And friends, we are prone to wonder and we do break the boundaries that God assigns for us. These free, good boundaries that God gives to us, we wander outside of them. But that the grace of God is always waiting there to forgive and to heal. And Solomon, after all of his betrayal and all of his treachery and all of his breaking of the commandments of God, 
He's forgiven and reconciled to God. The end of the book of Ecclesiastes is also attributed to Solomon in a statement of confession. And it's beautiful. It's freeing. Because this is what is necessary. This is the vitality of the church is to recognize the love of God and the faithfulness of God to a church that is weak and prone to wonder, to a church that falls into, falters and fails and falls into sin. This is who we are. And we must live in that weakness, acknowledging it to God, knowing that all of these tendencies are inherent here, but then asking God to awaken and reawaken, to stir and to always be stirring. And for this next year, I would encourage you to make this your prayer. It's my prayer for us as a congregation. It's my prayer for you personally as a disciple. It's my prayer for myself personally as one trying to follow our Lord Jesus. It's my prayer for my family and my children. But it's about the awakening and reawakening grace of God. It's what Paul prays in the book of Ephesians. He approaches the Father who names every family in heaven and on earth in verse 14 and 15. And then he prays that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit and your inner being. Paul is praying for the church to be strengthened by the Spirit so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that the strengthening of the Spirit, Jesus dwells in our heart and faith, so that we may then do something else, so that we be rooted and grounded in love, and that also we may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge. That was Paul's prayer, that we always be overwhelmed with the knowledge that surpasses all knowledge, the love of God in Jesus Christ, that this is the key to the, vital, to the vitalization of the church, to the revitalization of the church, to the awakening and reawakening, to the reformness and the reforming nature of the church. This is the key. Say that simple prayer for yourself, for us. This is what the church needs. This is the tension we inhabit. And let us walk inside of that tension and find God gracious and faithful to us. Let's pray. Father, we do depend upon you. We're reliant upon your spirit. It's in you that we live and move and have our being. And we trust you. And Lord, we ask that you would sustain us in the year ahead, that we would know your great love for us, and that we would know you never fail us. While all the things we love in this world will fail us and cannot deliver, we know that you will not, that you are our one true good in heaven and on earth. And so teach us to turn to you, and may we find you good and forgiving, abounding in steadfast love and mercy that is freely ours in Jesus Christ. We pray in his name. Amen. Let's stand and sing together.